A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome along to this week's Writer's Routine where we're chatting to Greg Hurwitz. He's got a new book out in his Orphan X series. It's called The Last Orphan. We talk about his plan at the start of his career to make writing into a regular job so it could last as long as possible. Also, how he's managed to get back into a state of pure writing without any of the other distractions that normally surround success. And you can hear that even though he's written, published and sold a lot of books, he still gets stuck in the baggy middle just like everyone else. And whenever I'm in the second act, I always feel like, you know, in a screenplay, you you can kind of keep your bearings in it. Even if you're on page 70, you can kind of reach forward and grab the lip of the third act and you can still reach back and like have in your muscle memory the, the first act books man that that second act books are kind of like you go down and descend into them right and then you just write forward for months and then you pop out the other end and look back and hope it doesn't suck i mean you're just you know it's like i can be in the story a lot but they're big i mean they're 400 pages of final product right they're not a 110 page recipe like a screenplay with lots of white on the page so it's a very different endeavor and i'm always in the middle i have a moment where i'll come down and be like you know it's just not working and my wife will look at me and she goes second act like yep it's the second act really good one this week loads coming up with greg Hurwitz in writer's routine Welcome along to the show. My name is Dan Simpson. Thank you for being there, for listening, for finding, for playing, for sharing. This is the show where we take a look through an author's working day to see how they get stuff done, to see how they take an idea and they plan their day, their life, their time, their space, all around it, to give it the best chance of getting down onto the page. And it's a fantastic guest this week. Greg Hurwitz is a multi-million Sunday Times and New York Times best-selling author. He's written screenplays for movies, written comic books like Batman. He helped write the opening ceremony for the last Football World Cup. He's published, I think it's about 14 standalone adult novels, two young adult books, and he's back with the latest Orphan X novel, uh, The Last Orphan. Evan's smoke was taken from a group home at the age of 12 and then raised and trained in the Orphan Programme, which is an off-the-books operation designed to create assassins. Evan is Orphan X, the nowhere man. Now, Greg does a lot of research for his books, jumps out of planes and trains with the Navy SEALs, goes undercover into mind-control cults. He says that... 
to place the reader, to place you at the front of his novel, to take the reader on the ride with him, he needs to have done everything himself. Uh, he's busy, very much busy, discovering for his art. And we chat about that. Now, sometimes when I have a, uh, quite a successful author on the show, I think maybe it can be quite hard to get to the bottom of their creativity and, and how they plan their day because sometimes their answers have been refined from years of, of being interviewed. It's not that you don't get a lot of truth. It's that it kind of comes with a lot of noise on the outside of it, if that makes sense. But I think Greg is really fantastic on this. He's got some really great insights, tips and tricks that can absolutely help you out. Uh, perhaps this because this is the first face-to-face interview I've done for a year or so now. Really enjoyed actually chatting to an author in the flesh. And I think you can hear that from some of the tangents that we take in our chat. We talk about the advice that he got from James Patterson, which completely changed the way and whereabouts he works. Also, why it's different to bring up the bottom to fix the small things in your writing. And you can hear how it feels to have action figures and toys made of the things that were once only imagined in his head. Uh, That's all on the way. Uh, Just a, a very quick warning on this. I think there must have been a phone on the table. Maybe I left mine out when I had some of the questions on there. Because every now and then in the chat, you'll hear that, you know, that buzzing interference that you sometimes get when a phone's there. I don't think it's too distracting. Happens a little bit at the start and then it does die away. So do push on. I think it is really worthwhile because I think there's a lot to learn with Greg Hurwitz this week on the show. And we get into it as we always do with what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Well, my office at home... I have a room with a view, and it overlooks uh, a pretty nice little valley. I have two giant Rhodesian Ridgebacks who are usually underfoot, or they start brawling. They're about 125 pounds and 100 pounds, and so they get up a good head of steam. Um, I usually have a white noisemaker on and the door shut so that I'm completely quiet and focused. I can't listen to any music or anything with words to it at least so it's just a white noise sound to try and kind of block everything else out um and i have a kind of faux gas fireplace that i'll click on sometimes i do a little candles get in the mood get all the sensory stuff ready so i'm stretched out i like to get to the office first thing but i will tell you i can kind of work anywhere now and that came about after a piece of advice i got once from james patterson well uh, let me plonk that plonk you back down in your writing space just for a second i'm fascinated by the white noise machine at what point did you decide you needed this you needed this to zone out and get in your story that was post children (laughs) once i had children yeah i have great speakers in my stereo so i just run it through kind of surround sound and put on like just white noise and it works it works great but the whole office is you know it like thrums with uh It's kind of like a hum. I think it's important to have all these different cues. You know, you think about it before you, you know, do a sporting event, before you step into a yoga studio or into the batter's box if you're playing baseball. You know, there's a bunch of routines. There's a bunch of ritual. I think it's the same thing. It's about trying to get get myself into the right state of mind. So if there's a lot of cues for that, even like smell and sound and everything, then it helps me kind of leave my head and go right into the words. It's amazing. I've not spoken to, and I've spoken to a lot of authors doing this. I've not spoken to many authors who articulate it so analytically like that, who almost compare it to 
you know, stepping up at the batting cage at Wrigley Field or wherever it is. And you do these little things to let you know, right, this is here, you're there to work. What else do you have that just draws you back into that space? Well, if we're talking process a bit, I mean, one of the things I do is I like to leave, if I finish a chapter and it's close to the end of my writing day, I'll always try and start the next one, even a sentence or two to just crack into it so that I can have somewhere to begin instead of at a full stop. Um, And the other thing I'll do is when I first get back to it, I read whatever I wrote in the last session and that gives me a bit of a running start. Um, But everything for me is meticulous. Look, Orphan X is an assassin. He's got his 10 10 commandments, the 10 assassins rules. And the second one is how you do anything is how you do everything. And so I feel like if I can try to focus on every piece of it, if I can get my head clear, if I can get into that office before too much of the world intrudes on me, then I can be inside the story for the first thing. And if I have too many distractions first thing in the morning, it's harder for me to wrangle my attention span and focus back. Let me just chuck you back in your writing space. Um, what What is there directly around you? I'm talking perhaps photos that are inspirational, maybe framed books that let you know that you can do this, maybe something practical, post-it notes, a plotting spreadsheet. Is there anything like that going on? Huh. Well, I have... A bunch of bookcases in my office that are built in. I have a fireplace, which I mentioned, which I often have on. I have a framed uh, Time magazine with William Faulkner on the cover. Um, I have one copy of each book. I have some of the Orphan X, like action figures and Lego figures and different accoutrement. I have an American Heritage uh, fifth edition, which is my preferred dictionary on a stand. Um, and then I have a lot of blank surfaces. I like everything to be clean. I'm super meticulous about the writing space. So I like the clutter to exist mainly in my brain instead of out in the space around me. It's interesting you mentioned the action figures, the, the Lego all over the place. When, you, when you're starting off writing, it's always, it's, it can only really be a dream that this is what happens, that you get action figures made of the characters that you created in your head. Do you ever, like, along the way, when you were a few books into the Orphan X series, when you've written a few scripts, um, do you take stock? Do you realise, oh, here's where I am, I've done this, I've kind of checked this bit off? Or does it all sweep away from you and, and suddenly you're here pretty successful without kind of taking stock of it along the way? Well, look, you, I try to take stock along the way. It's a very interesting question of how you keep pace with it because things can get surreal pretty quick, you know, and I've had ventures in a couple of different fields. Um, I mean, the biggest thing for me is it's, it's, I'm so oriented towards being grateful. Like I still can't believe I get to do this for a living. I mean, it's so much fun when I was in college, you know, most of my college roommates were going into like law or medicine or investment banking And I literally went, um, actually came to England. I did kind of a stall. I was trying to finish this terrible rough draft of my first novel. But if somebody then had said they'd pay me like $2,000 a month for the rest of my life to live in a one-room studio and I could just write and have the time and pay and feed myself, I would have signed that contract in a heartbeat. Like it was the only thing I ever wanted to do. And so that's a big starting point of it. I mean, obviously it's like now and then the real world intrudes, there's frustrations, there's ups and downs. But I mean, I start with such a position of kind of disbelief that I get to do this. And then along the way, there's different stuff that's cool. Like somebody gets a, you know, a tattoo of one of the commandments, right? Or, 
you know, sends me original art or vodka companies. If I write about a particular vodka, because Orphan X drinks the world's finest vodkas. And if I write about them, sometimes their sales go up. So I'll get these like beautiful engraved bottles of vodka to Orphan X from around the world. And like seeing it made manifest in my life and around me and seeing readers who it really means a lot to is incredible. I mean, it's it's just amazing. Has there been any specific moment along the way when you realized holy you know holy hell like this is a big moment that's happened that really made you sit up and think what's become of it there's a number of them i mean one of them i had that was amazing was god i remember my first book tour to australia felt that way like for some reason i was like the american guest of honor at the brisbane book festival and every it was just one of those weeks that everything was great like i gave the talk it was the best food it was my first time in australia loved australia I mean, so there's these moments that punctuate it, right, of where everything seems to just line up and go swimmingly. Um, You know, the first time I I was a number one hardcover bestseller here for the Sunday Times. That was incredible. I mean, especially for me having gone and done some university here. Um, You know, there's just moments. It's, It's weird. You know, the first time hitting the list, the first a lot of times for me, it's also like I've never lost the thrill of the first time I get the box and I open it and it's the actual book with the book cover and I hold it in my hand. Like the first time I see a book cover because then it's made real. It's the first time that another artist or designer has stepped in and turned it into an object that's different than just a 400 page word document, you know? So there, there are these thrills along the way. And then sometimes there's these bigger moments where I'm like, I can't believe I'm in, you know, is it like the, Sharjah Book Festival a month or two ago in UAE, right? Talking about Orphan X with a Sheikah halfway around the world, you know? So it, 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 it has led to some amazing and unlikely adventures. Does that help you out when the going is getting tough? When you're in the baggy middle of writing a book, when you can't really see, see the wood for the trees and the shadow, when it's very hard? Does knowing that you've done this before, knowing that these prizes might be to come, does that help you? Yeah, it does now. For a long time, I would have said no. It's funny. You talk about the baggy middle of a book. I always have trouble in, you know, I think in some ways, part of this is because I'm a screenwriter as well, though I'm first and primarily a novelist. But I tend to think in a three-act structure, like from a classic screenplay. And whenever I'm in the second act, I always feel like, you know, in a screenplay, you you can kind of keep your bearings in it. Even if you're on page 70, you can kind of reach forward and grab the lip of the third act and you can still reach back and like having your muscle memory, the, the first act books, man, that that second act books are kind of like you go down and descend into them. Right. And then you just write forward for months and then you pop out the other end and look back and hope it doesn't suck. I mean, there's just, you know, it's like I can be in the story a lot, but they're big. I mean, they're 400 pages of final product, right? They're not a 110 page recipe like a screenplay with lots of white on the page. So it's a very different endeavor and i'm always in the middle i have a moment where i'll come down and be like you know it's just not working and my wife will look at me and she goes second act like yep it's the second act but i've gotten to a point i mean gosh i'm 25 books in now where i think some of this is like i know where i am in it a bit structurally watch i'm gonna say this and then the 26 book's gonna be a disaster (laughs) but there's there look there's always gonna be some aspect of insecurity i think part of that is is when you're an artist of any kind you don't know where it comes from like there's some aspect it's not like having 
different jobs where you can have tangible and hard skills that are repeatable yeah. right i mean writing dialogue it can't be replicated in a lab setting it's different every time out so there's some aspect of trying to stay aligned with something that's intangible right but then there is also some more confidence that comes and builds you know but you just got to be you got to be careful it's so much of it's about respecting the craft if i can take you back a few books previous maybe when when you had published four or five uh, i had an email the other day from a listener who, who really wanted to know how authors deal with the doubt at the very start of the book this is an aspiring writer someone that's published nowhere near 24 25 um how do you get, kind of deal with lingering thoughts that you might have at the start and then moving through the baggy middle that heck this just isn't good enough what do you do keep going you keep going. You got to get it down. Like as many writer before me has said, you can't fix a blank page. You have to give yourself permission to just get a vomit draft down. Hard to keep motivated, though, on that every morning, surely. Mm, I don't know. I mean, is it harder than anyone else with any other job or are we just more precious about it? I, th- I think I think that's a good point. But maybe it's interesting that you're working for yourself to a degree. Like, yeah, is, I mean, is, is there a degree of culpability there that if I go... And sit in an office i might not be the manager so if i have a bum day it might not filter down to me yeah but you know it's also in a lot of ways that's a privilege it's a privilege to be your own boss look i was real fortunate young i sold my first book i was like 21 years old and i had enough i literally like did the math and thought if i live on pretty much the salary that i told you at the beginning how many months will i have that i'll get to write Like, all I wanted to do is have that writing time. So anytime I got money, I viewed it as like tank for the gas. And the car was my ability to keep going and keep writing. I mean, so my first three, four deals, all I did, like I never ticked up. I bought like a, you know, a car that could run through 400,000 miles. Like I just was, what's all the time and effort I can put into just writing more. And, you know, it was really hard for me. I'm more extroverted than a lot of writers. And being alone all day was tough. But when I got that first deal, I thought, look, this is the only thing I wanted for as long back as I can remember. I was five years old. I wanted to write novels. So now I have it. So what am I going to do? I said, I'm going to, no matter how hard it is, I'm going to write and treat this like a proper job. I'll write eight hours a day. I'll get up, I'll have a schedule, and I'll put my mind to it. And it was hard to build that up. It's like building up muscle, right, for a sport or an exercise. But I just was... I felt like if I had that shot, I wasn't going to let it go without getting a lot of discipline and ritual around it. I'd like to ask you a question that I don't think I've ever asked anyone else. And it's just because you said something that you'd wanted to do this, this since you were five years old. This is all you've ever wanted to do. N- now you are 24 books down, very successful. How much do you let all the other noise get in the way of you sat there writing your story? All the other business that comes in with it, all the other the, the contracts, all everything else that bogs down any creative pursuit. Uh, You can answer this in as much detail as you like, and I'm sorry if I've offended you, but how much do you let that bog you down, the minutiae and the tediousness of the business of the thing? I think there was a period where it bogged me down more than I would have admitted, right? Where I'm like, you know, because taking out a pitch for TV shows. And look, I write comic. I do a bunch of different ventures, And that noise of it, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to sit and stare at the blank page, right? To make rough draft writing. And I always feel like that's the only thing that's work. You know, I can do, if I'm on book tour, if I'm doing other stuff, if I'm rewriting, if I'm doing interviews, it's, for me, rough draft writing in particular requires 
the full focus of everything. And I think for a while I had a lot of my attention and focus was probably going to other things, though I always found the time when I was writing to be focused solely on that. But it's funny because with some measure of success that I've had now, I feel like I can get more and more back to a more and more pure state of that again, just to have it's unbelievably important to me now that I'm focusing on what I'm doing, because if I have a lot of projects, they're all really, really important. And so I try and get all everything else cleared out of the way. Um, I try and offload as much as I possibly can now again to try and get back to that first state again in some ways. I think that's how it is for a lot of people. I think when you're you're quite aspirational for a a gig or a job, you want everything that comes with it. And then you realize that it's all white noise. You know, this this is actually what you got in this for is to sit down and be focused on your story and write. And you mentioned a word of advice from James Patterson that you got that helps you write anywhere. What what was it? Oh, he was funny. This was very early in my career. I was still a baby writer and he'd flown cross country to come to California. He was the keynote at an event that I was also participating in. And I said, did you ride on the plane on the way out? And he said, yeah, of course. He said, how about you? And I said, oh, no, no, I need my office and I need my dictionary, my American Heritage, then three, third edition. I need my books. I need my space. I need all this. And he looked at me and he said, learn. And so I was like, all right, you know, if the most successful writer in the history of the world is giving me that advice, I better figure it out. And it's like, so pretty quickly now I can write anywhere. I mean, I wrote on the flight to England this morning. I wrote in the cab on the way to the hotel you know i've written in the i mean i can write anywhere now and that was something that i was holding back that i needed this kind of sacred space of my office which of course is what i prefer i prefer the white noise and i prefer the fireplace and the view and the ridgebacks but if i can't have it i had to figure out how to write anywhere and that was immensely helpful i mean especially like you know if i'm on production if i'm shooting one thing and i'm writing something else right right now i'm touring for the last orphan which is delightful but i have to edit the book that's after that now right and so there's just so much stuff that it can't it can't wait for me to be in the perfect environment and so it was another way of me kind of expanding the discipline of writing out and further and away from you know a kind of maybe more precious or guarded initial view that i had precious maybe isn't fair maybe i needed that to start you know what I mean? To learn it. But it was just, that's a facility that was really important to me to figure out. We spoke about the little particularities of, of you sitting there, that, that what you would call precious is, you know, the white noise machine, the fireplace. You needed these things, these cues to remind yourself that, hey, you're here writing. When you were learning to be able to write anywhere, do you still need anything at all? Do you need anything to click you in? gear to say that you're creating now doesn't matter if you're in the back of a cab on the way to london if you're in the plane flying back to la i can try and get there look i think a lot about writing as i'm going to use a baseball my second baseball metaphor of the day now so you have to you have to forgive me there's probably a good cricket uh metaphor (laughs) that you can translate it you can translate it but look i think a lot about what differentiates a professional athlete from an amateur athlete right so if someone's playing triple a ball that's the minor leagues in america If they have a great day, if they're in the zone, if they're seeing the ball clearly, they don't need any other help. They can be playing at the top of the major league level. But what differentiates a professional ball player in a lot of ways is they bring up the bottom of their game also. So if they're having a really crap day at the plate and they're not seeing the ball and they're not hitting, 
they can maybe draw a walk. They can maybe steal a base, right? They're on their fielding game. They have other things that they can do that even on days when it's not easy and they're not feeling it, they still are productive, right? And they still sort of move the team forward for the season. And I think there's a lot of that with writing. Is there some days where I sit down and I feel like, oh man, like the words are right there, right? I just got to get my fingers to move fast enough that I can just type them down. And that's glorious, right? That's often when I have a lot of time unbroken days in a row without a lot of calls and travel and other events and other projects when you're in a groove. But even on days when I don't have all that luxury, I don't have all the time, I'm not fully there, I have to still be productive. I have to still get stuff down, even knowing later that I can embellish it, rewrite it, you know, use it as a trampoline to get into something else. So it's really about trying to be productive all the time. I mean, again, it's the second commandment. How you do anything is how you do everything. You just try and do everything as best as you can all the time in every way. Uh, going to, the, to that metaphor, going to a batter at the plate, perhaps, who's, who knows they're not really up for it that day. How do you know? I mean, they, they can judge it because they're batting terribly. They're pitching awfully. How, how do you know as a writer that this just is, isn't your day, but we're going to have to muddle through? Hmm. Well, usually now I don't muddle. Usually I can get, I can start muddling and get to somewhere, right? It's about point of entry. Um, There's a lot of things like that. That's true for reading, right? It's true for like running, obviously, right? You can start running and feel terrible. And then all of a sudden you kind of get your right cadence, but also with reading. I mean, I've had times when I can't read, I'm reading the same page again and again and again, my thoughts are elsewhere. And all of a sudden it's like, boom, you're in the book. And you just sit and read for an hour and you don't look at the clock anymore, right? So it's like that. It's conditioning. For me, it's conditioning myself to be in a particular state of mind. And so if I'm sitting there and I'm kind of thinking, you know, it's it, for me, I can always tell it's going well when I'm just seeing it. I'm just seeing it. And the words are right there. And so I try and do everything to get myself to that place. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it feels more like craft than art. And that's okay, right? Because you can, I can hammer out a pretty good scaffolding around a scene right or some pretty good infrastructure and then you know go off and come back the next day and figure out how to flesh it out more fully and how to three-dimensionalize it right and how to get in that cadence again where you feel like it's it's aiming at art instead of relying on craft when did you feel like you first figured it out i speak to a lot of writers who have written two three four books and i know that you will never say that, oh, I've mastered it, because if you've mastered it, if you've perfected the craft, whatever it is, it would be pointless carrying on. But someone that has published 24-odd books, was there a point that you remember that you felt like, okay, I'm getting this now, I'm, 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 fi- I'm figuring out what my voice is, how I work best? It's all, so first of all, it's always a process of that, right? So whenever anyone says, you know, master of the form, it's like, no, you, you don't ever master it, right? Because you didn't write crime and punishment and ulysses and right there's there's always there's always everests on top of your own personal everest right it just goes up all the way um but i will say that my first two books my first book I, look i was also really young it was not a particularly great first draft though it got me some attention to at least get good notes but i did i think 16 drafts of the first book and then sold it second book i did an equivalent number it was just a mess. Both of those books I was writing. Look, I was also a kid. I was started the first book. I was 19. I started the second book. I was 21. 
but both of those books i had a rough draft i had to sit down and take apart entirely like an engine block and just have all the pieces laying around me and then reassemble it my third novel i finished a rough draft that kind of resembled what a what a book should look like and i'd say since then my rough drafts have gotten pretty solid i mean i do a lot of rewriting along the way now or you know thinking but when i get through a book now it's usually in pretty decent shape in those first two books do you remember um then when you got to the third book do you remember learning along the way like oh more considerately than you would do now because now you know you're, you're writing off an extra doing quite a lot of different books i imagine the learning isn't as much at the forefront in your mind just because you've done it a little bit when in the first two books you're thinking God, I'm doing 16 drafts a piece here. What can I do to make this better? What What do you remember learning? I mean, I honestly remember in that rough draft, in that shitty first rough draft, the end of every chapter was better than the beginning because of how steep my learning curve was in the process of writing it. I mean, I was there's no way to learn how to write a book unless you do it and you're screwing it up. You just can't. The fool precedes the master always. You know, and so and I also try with all the books to stretch more and do something different. There's always learning. It's just more it's more fun now in certain ways, because back then I was like, how am I going to do this? And, you know, you don't have there's no stability. There's no security. You know, you don't I, I needed help on every front. Right. It's like I needed I mean, that first draft, it was like, what needs work? Well, character structure, pacing, tone, vocab, dialogue, like all of it, all of it needs help. That's okay, right? That's true of everything. And so I had to figure my way through. But now it's like, you know, I'm setting different kinds of sites. I want different kinds of, to evoke different kinds of emotions. You know, the Orphan X series, I'm really trying to do something in a thriller series that feels innovative and unique in a lot of ways. And it should always be scary. I should start every book thinking that I'm reaching for something I might not get. And, you know, it's like bite off more than I can chew and then figure out how to chew it. This next one might be unanswerable. I'm thinking about those little things that you learn and, and how, how, how much they could be a headline. If you understand, like, like I guess it's like the um, the commandments, like you know the assassin's commandments. I, I speak I speak to some writers who live by almost like a mantra of get as late into the scene as possible. Mm. I wondered if you had any very short, bite-sized, like headlines of what you've learned about what makes your writing best that you could share. It's fine if you don't, because who sits there and thinks about these? But just if you had like a couple. Well, see, they're all different, so. I'll give you a quick example, right? When you're doing a screenplay, obviously a lot of things have to alter from the novel, right? Novel, we know what people think. You don't want too much voiceover in a screenplay in a movie, right? Because voiceover reminds you you're watching a movie, right? You want to maximize whatever the form is. Everything's got to be seen or spoken, right? You can't have an internal narrative. But when you go to writing comic books, and I wrote comics for quite a few years, uh, I wrote Batman and I just had a creator owned book come out called black uh, uh, called um, new think that's sort of like black mirror meets the twilight zone. It's like, a, um, but writing comics, what's interesting is you're rolling the camera, but it's an old fashioned camera and you can only take four to seven snapshots per page. So you have to decide what you're going to show. Do you show your character? You can't show your character, just punch someone. You can show the wind up. You can show the moment of impact or you can show the aftermath. And sometimes what's really interesting is to come into a scene and turn that camera on and it's just the aftermath of a fight scene. And sometimes you do it where it just leads right up to it. And so I was thinking about that a lot 
with the orphan X's and in my fourth orphan X book, there's a scene where basically these two cops come to arrest him. He's in a crowded cafe and he sort of, as they sidle up on him, he describes to them the fight that's going to commence if they decide to push him, like what tools he's going to use, what water he's going to throw in their face, where he's going to injure them essentially, if they don't just leave him alone and they don't. And I literally just end the scene and the scene with him bracing himself and saying, so are we going to do this? And then it ends and we never see the fight scene that was just described. And then three chapters later, those cops show up at their next meeting and they bear all the matching injuries that I described, right? That, that Evan smoked, that Orphan X had described to them that they would have. And there was a very interesting lesson, which was like, you, we can choose where we go. We can choose the, the quotation I think you were referencing is, you know, start in the middle of a scene and write your way out. Yeah. You can also start before the scene and end before the scene begins, right? The order of information is as important as the information itself. And so there's a lot of ways to start to have fun with story to catch readers who are very sophisticated, right? There's a different level of pop cultural awareness with readers now than we had you know when i certainly than when i was younger before social media and interviews and online and right and so they know a lot they know about narrative they know about story and so it's really fun to have that conversation of of at like offering your hand to the reader and having them come along because they understand some of those tropes and that's where you can really start to play in ways that are fun talking about playing is that half the trick for you now is is trying to almost second guess your audience but basically you're setting yourself little little writing tricks to say we'll figure this one out because you know if, if writers as you said readers sorry know so much now well the key for me isn't ever thinking about the readers the key is the first part of that which is playing if i'm playing if i'm having fun when i'm writing that's the whole key you know if i'm bored writing readers going to be bored reading and the more that I can think about, okay, what differentiates an Orphan X, you know, an Orphan X action scene is different than a Jack Reacher scene or a Jason Bourne scene or a James Bond scene. Everything's got to be distinct. Everything's got to be distinct to character, right? But if I can be in that mode where I'm just playing, where it's playful and I'm just having a great time, then that's what often gets conveyed and that readers can pick up. It's a kind of energy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We'll be back with more from Greg in just a sec. Thank you so much if you've sent over the best book that you've read so far in 2023 for me. For the last few weeks, we have been collecting a book recommendation list. I know it's what uh, coming to the end of February, so we're only a couple of months through this year. I think it would be a fantastic thing to, to use everyone listening to the show, all the wide and varied reading tastes, and just get a big book recommendation list going on. So we've had a few that have been sent over. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, which I really, really appreciate. And you can see them all, actually. You can see the recommendations that we have so far over at writersrouting.com. I've stuck a brand new page that you can check out on the tab over there. So then hopefully, by the end of the year, we will have an enormous reading list, far bigger than it normally is. So I'd love to hear yours. You can send yours to writersroutine.com or it's writersroutine at gmail.com on a normal email. Pedro Oliviera has got in touch. Thank you for your kind words about the show, Pedro. Pedro says the best book they've read so far in 2023 was A.D. Miller's Snowdrops, released back in 2011. It has amazing insights into contemporary Russia's dark soul. Reads like a prophecy, given the current situation. We really can't say that we weren't warned. Um... One of those ones, Pedro, that, I mean, it sounds like a fascinating read, The Dark Soul of Russia, but I don't know. If I'm being honest, I don't know if I'm ready to to, to dive into that just yet. Maybe you are, though. I'll stick it on the reading list just in case you forget over on our website. Thank you so much for the email, Pedro. Uh, also, Stephanie Sanders-Green has got in touch. Uh, they just finished reading The Keepers of the House, a 1964 novel by Shirley Ann Graw. They highly recommend it. It's a generational story set in the American South that explores race, values and hypocrisy. In part as a cautionary tale, the book is a Pulitzer Prize winner and add it to your reading list, she says. I do love any book that takes me into the American South, especially one from 1964. So I'll try and pick that one up. It's called The Keepers of the House. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you, Stephanie. The Keepers of the House and A.D. Miller's Snowdrops recommended for you today. If you have read something fantastic this year... Maybe it was just an absolute thrilling page turner. Maybe something that you took your time over and it made you think. Whatever it is, let me know the best book that you've read so far in 2023. We're making a fantastic reading list on our website. That's where you send it over. Use the contact page at writersroutine.com or you can fire off an email to me, writersroutine at gmail.com. Sending over your book recommendation isn't the only way that you can get in touch with the show. You can also join the writing community over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. All it takes is a small pledge supporting the show, helping us carry on for just a few dollars a month. I know times are tight, but whatever you can send our way goes an extraordinarily long way. You can get merch, you get our thanks, there is bonus content and there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show. And it helps us carry on. It helps us keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around as often as possible. If you would like to make that happen, if you want to get involved and support the show, you can do that really easy. I'd love to see you there at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Greg Hurwitz, the author of the Orphan X books. The new one is The Last Orphan with Evan Smoke back. The Nowhere Man is on the case for another mission, this time at the call of the president. We talk about the writing commandments that he's learned. What rules does he live by when he works? Also, 
why he dives full on into his research and some of the stories behind those, which are really, really fascinating. And we get back into it with the point of the show. And we're over halfway through and we've missed it so far. So let's jump into it with Greg Hurwitz's writer's routine. There's a wonderful book by Michael Chabon, who won the Pulitzer for Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. And it's called Manhood for Amateurs. It's a wonderful collection of nonfiction essays. And he talks about, I mean, I think he has like five kids or something. He just keeps having kids. And he keeps talking about how he wants to get back to this perfect schedule in his mind of before he had kids. And then he had this realization where he's like, I, that's never going to happen again, right? Like your life just changes in certain ways. So look, I'm traveling a lot, right? I have, I went and like, great job. I, I helped write the opening ceremony for the World Cup in Qatar, right? Like amazing adventures that will move and disrupt what used to be, I'm in rough draft mode. Nobody talked to me from, you know, eight in the morning to five to six at night. And that's all I'm doing. And so the days stretch in a lot of ways. They stretch out of shape. They get interrupted. I'm on airplanes. Ideally, if I'm home and working, it's no contact. I literally go in my office. I take both phones out of my office. I give them to my assistant. I don't turn on my cell phone. I want nothing that happens and I get to that desk. And if I can get four hours of straight writing before anything else happens in the morning, the whole rest of my day makes sense. I'll work out. I'll get all the writing done. I can come back and revisit it. I can deal with calls and work stuff after. Um, that's the best template. Um, but a lot of the times I'm working, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day because there's just other calls and pieces. Um, but I would love right now a block of like, just two months unbroken you know sometimes it just feels like if i could just have the like one story i'm working on and the time for it i mean that would in some ways that's the dream but as michael chabon was saying you know when your life changes and gets more complicated you can fight your way back to that but it's 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 just going to be different so you know i'm i'm and that's also good you know but i still need to clear all the decks like i just got to this place of being like i can't have phones in my office of any kind i don't i can't have anything i can't check email i can't go on, i can't do anything that's online for the first chunk of the day now that's just protective that's protective to try and get back to where i was before but also i'm never going to get all the way back there and that's okay because i do have other incoming calls and responsibilities and projects and creative things to manage and things to produce and things to oversee so it's about trying to maintain the necessity, right? To maintain that core of discipline and focus. In an ideal day, when you have managed to get four hours done before anyone intrudes, is there an aim for that four hours? Is there a word count? Are you aiming for a particular point in the story? Not anymore. I used to have kind of roughly word count days, but it changes. Like I might find a flaw in the manuscript and spend the whole day going back and trying to retrofit and untangle it, right? To get to the place where I am. Um, I've had days where I'm just kind of laying map for a bunch of stuff that's forward. If I'm writing well, really writing, I can get, I can have pretty chunky days. I can get, you know, 5,000, 8,000, 10,000 words in a day if I'm really, really moving. Are you concerned about the quality of those words? We spoke earlier on about um, playing baseball and maybe a, a batter is, is just picking up the short of his game because he knows the main things aren't that good if you, uh, are you concerned at all about the quality of words or is it just let's get what we can done and then we'll fix it later usually when i'm writing really fast i'm writing well like i it's like don't worry about me if i'm writing fast if i'm writing pretty slow then usually that's where there's a problem which is interesting 
but like towards the back end of a book i mean i've had i've had streaks where i write it i mean i wrote a quarter of a novel once in three days i just didn't leave my desk i left my desk to like you know eat shower grab a couple hours sleep but it was like harder for me to not be in the book than to be in the book and that was a great burst i mean i was wiped when it was done but i wrote like thirty-three thousand words in three or four days do you try and get to a point now where that doesn't need to happen if you know that you need to get a manuscript done in you know and a thousand word manuscript or whatever it is a hundred thousand word rather manuscript done in a few months do you like to to slightly plan to make sure that you well, do, I do plan that wasn't a deadline i was way ahead of deadline on that it's just what was coming you know it was just focus no i love when that happens i love when i can't think about anything but writing that's great i wish that would happen more when it doesn't happen though when the words are struggling to come out what do you do have you learned any tricks along the way that slightly greases the cogs of potential writer's block well we talked about the cues i talked about starting with a running start go back and read a couple chapters before i mean i can usually get the words i don't really get writer's block right i just have the biggest problem to be honest with you in a lot of ways now is distraction you know when i'm gone like so right now i'm i'm out on book tour for last orphan which is grand like i haven't been to england to tour the uk since before the pandemic and this is one of my favorite spots i mean i love i love being here and coming here it's one of the highlights for me of of anything that i do in my career it's one of my favorite trips and stops i'm gonna go from here to the u.s i'm in a different city a day for you know 10 days it's a lot of flights when i get home i literally have to reconfigure my brain and reestablish my attention span because I'm on a phone, there's texts, there's interviews, there's emails, right? Where are we meeting? Where are we going? And it's like you get out of shape, right? And I'll come back sometimes from book tour or if I'm on production and I have to literally like rewire my brain for deeper work focus. I think we all feel that. Like anyone who has a phone feels that, right? If you're on your phone too much, your nervous system starts to go haywire, right? And so vacillating between the modes is tricky. And I think that's part of why starting out the day really clean is a big help to me. You mentioned that you're in the process of editing another book while you're here promoting one book, and then you'll soon have to write another book, I would assume. Like, at what point do you start to think about that next thing you're writing? Like, how long before, if you're writing another role for next book, or whatever comes next, how long will you give yourself before you start typing that first sentence on the keyboard to just, like... It's all coming already. I mean, I know the next... So, I'm... You know, we're talking about the last orphan, right? I'm editing the next one. I know in like rough draft, I know my guts what the one after that is. And I probably know, I know the shape of the one that's after that. And then there's a similar thing with, you know, screenplays or other projects, comics, um, you know, and so they're there. It's a matter of time to get to them, but it's not, I don't finish a book and then wait and think about what's going to come next. I'm they're They're kind of lined up and it's about me trying to hold the focus and keep them simmering at the right temperature, right? On different back burners until I can rotate them in the front counter or to the front burner. Well, this might be quite tricky to answer then. Um, if you've got this always going on in your head, what do you remember about the first moment that, what became the story for the last orphan came into your head did you remember the kind of kernel that it presented itself as to you hmm. i always thought about you know so orphan x you know was pulled out of a foster home by the age of 12 he was trained to be an assassin um but his father figure 
who raised him kind of in isolation. You know, he had one-on-one training with mixed martial arts experts and, you know, psyops. He was drown proof. Like he was just put through this insane training. Also learning different languages, etiquette from different countries, all the things to make him disappear, all the things to make him. I call him kind of a, he's a blue collar Renaissance man. And Jack Johns, his handler and father figure says to him when he's 12, when he first gets him, he's a scrawny little foster home kid, you know, they got him because he's an expendable weapon, right? If he gets killed somewhere, no one's going to miss him. No one's going to ask for him. But Jack really loves him. And Jack tells him the hard part isn't going to be making you a killer. The hard part is keeping you human. And that's a sort of collision course that he's been on because that makes it impossible. It would have been easier if he was a true believer. But being an assassin and being a human. And so that's a lot of what undergirds the story. And at some point before even the first Orphan X book, he's left the program because, you know, he discovers that you can't become human and be executing missions on behalf of ambiguous moral orders. Right. So he basically becomes a pro bono assassin. Right. He's got a one eight hundred number one eight five five to nowhere. It's encrypted. People call him if they have nowhere else to turn and he will help them. And, you know, and by the by the same token, he's off the radar. He fled the orphan program. So he's out on his own and they're hunting for him. And I always knew at some point I've had this in the earlier books where the past doesn't just catch up to him, but the past overtakes him. And I knew in this story that he would be overtaken. I knew that he would be he's established his own code. He's sworn to only commit or to execute missions that are aligned with his own moral compass, as I said. And there's a massive, massive manhunt operation. And the president of the United States um, manages to get him, you know, bound and gagged and secured and say to him, it's either your life or you commit one more mission for us because there's a mission that only he can do under his old designation as Orphan X. And so he has to choose now. It's between his code or his life. So is he going to uphold the code that he swore he'd live by? Or is he going to die? Or is there a third way? Is there something else he can do? And that was the kernel of the book. There's a lot going on. It's amazing. Um, we spoke about how busy you are. You've got to leave time to do research. I've, I've heard that you are quite one for like diving into research properly. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that important to you? Why, instead of reading about what Navy SEALs are up to, do you feel like you need to get out there and do it? If I experience it, I can give the reader a front row seat to the action in a different way. So before I started writing Orphan X, I shot all the guns he gets on from, you know, Benelli combat shotguns to custom 1911s. I trained in mixed martial arts fighting, um, which is not to imply I'm any good at it. But I, you know, I got thumped around pretty good. And, you know, when I'm put in a chokehold, you know, pain feels differently in different ways. You've been hit in the face by a ball or a fist or an elbow at some point in your life and face pain feels different there's a different quality to it than pain anywhere else well likewise for almost anything you know to be in a chokehold the properly administered chokehold from a trained fighter there's a kind of claustrophobia that sets in there's a way that you're like caught in a quickening vice that's it's pretty terrifying if you experience that firsthand right and if i don't experience it then all that i'm going to be able to do is write about it with a kind of cliche that's a conglomeration of other books that I've read or other movies that I've seen, which most of my readers have, right? And that's where you get a lot of, you know, and then everything went dark, right? You get a lot of that. And what I want to do is find all those details, those little moments of verisimilitude where I can lay something down on a scene 
and it just feels like the reader's right there and it helps me carry them across the suspension of disbelief into this fictional world where they feel like they can believe it and often that involves me having to go and do something firsthand does that affect then what you could write in the future because not that you are going to but if you suddenly fancy turning your hand at proper uh, proper fantasy novel or something mystical and magical much harder to do research for that authentically yeah i mean you know i'm not going to be able to ride dragons but there's you know there's a lot of other ways to have an immersive experience right and just you just pursue it look i've been up in stunt airplanes i've gone down class four white water rapids in the amazon forest i've gone undercover into mind control cults i've swam with sharks oh, yeah, um, i wanted to ask about the mind control cults it's <laughs> amazing how, how how do you this this will probably be the last question um like I want to know a bit of the backstory of that. How did they? How did you get to go undercover? <laughs> who, how did you send the email? What's well? What the goes good news on? is everyone asks me that who does okay. not live in Los Angeles. Oh, right. <laughs> in Los easier. Angeles, I was researching this, and one of my friends, who's an actress, called and was like, "Hey, I want to invite you to this very special event." I was like, "What's it about?" Like all the buzzwords, right? It's just about taking things to the next level. I was like, "Oh my god, I know what this is." Right? <laughs> What's the next level? Well, you really have to get in touch with your, you know, next best self. I was like, "Sign me up." I'll be there. And so I went to this kind of like eight hour lock in facility, training facility. Um, I submitted to some cult testing. I did a lot of research into mind control, mind control cults, um, the properties of persuasion, psyops, right? How they're administered and what the techniques are. It's amazing. It's, it was captivating. That's incredible. And this will be lastly, because this is down to the writing. That's what people are in it for. How much do you know about the book before you set, sit down to write? Do you know how it ends? When, do, when, do these, when does the next chapter come clear to you? By the time I'm writing, I usually have a pretty decent view of the book. Like, do you know those indoor rock climbing walls? Have yeah. you seen those? So a lot of times before I write, I need to know there's enough like kind of holds to get me across the wall the wall's the novel right i know there's a big chunky scene or chapter somewhere in the second act let's say i don't know if i'm going to get there with my left hand or my right foot but i know it's going to be there for me in the second act right to move me to the third and so it's sort of like that i have to know these enough chunky handholds for me to get across the story and then they tend to reveal themselves as i move into position to contemplate my next move That is it for this week's episode. Thank you so much to Greg Hurwitz for coming on the show. That new book is The Last Orphan. It's one of the author next books, the newest one, and it is out right now. Thank you to Greg. I know he was very busy coming on, uh, very busy when he was in the UK. So thank you for sparing the time to come on the show. Uh, Next week, we're, well, chatting about uh, another spy thriller, really, which I guess is a kind of assassin. Uh, Ava Glass is on with her brand new spy novel, The Chase. It's all set in a couple of days. It's a whirlwind, a thrilling ride. It crosses from country to country. You can hear all about it with Ava Glass next week on the show. Until then, support the show, patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. And do make sure you send over the best book that you have read this year for our book recommendation list, our reading list over at writersroutine.com. Or you can use the email in the normal way, writersroutine at gmail.com there. You can give us a follow on Twitter too, at writerspod, and I will see you next week with Ava Glass. Until then, bye. Hold up. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.